Please stand. For the reading of God's word, if you're new to our church, we welcome you. We're in a series in the Sermon on the Mount, which was recorded by Matthew in chapters 5, 6, and 7. We're coming to the end of chapter 5. And in this section, Jesus has been talking about the law, and five times he has said, you have heard, and he references something specific from the law, and then he extends it, he expands it. He shows that apart from him, it's impossible. And he's about to do the same. Before he moved into this section on the law, Jesus said these words. This is in Matthew 5.20. He said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, those were the religious leaders, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's a strong statement. He ends this section which I will conclude with in a moment by saying, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What does Jesus mean? Hear the word of the Lord. I'll begin at verse 43 of Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. The clarity of Christ's words here near the end of chapter 5 are not hard to understand, but to live them apart from Christ is impossible. Love your enemies. Who are your enemies? I really want you to make a list. Some of you have many. Some of you maybe a few. But the fall, the human condition, puts all of us in a place where we constantly experience enmity between ourselves and others. The people of God have always had an enemy. The first enemy listed in scripture is the serpent in the Garden of Eden, it's Satan. He's moving along seeking to do what Peter would describe later not as a serpent but as a lion, a roaring lion roaming around seeking someone to devour. Well that was his play all along and Satan is slithering along and he comes to Adam and Eve and he asks the first question that is in the Bible which is did God really say tempting Eve, they fell. And when they fell, they, Adam and Eve, who were not enemies of God, became enemies of God and enemies of one another. Eve gave birth to two boys, one murders the other, and off we go. The human condition. Who are your enemies? Is it a classmate? Some of you went back to school last week. Maybe you were hoping that summer vacation 
would have created a transformation in a friend or an enemy at school that you have to face every day and nothing's changed. Maybe it's not the classroom, but your coworker. Somebody who despises you or does things to harm you so that you can't advance. Maybe it's not a classmate or coworker, but a child living under your own roof. A terrorist almost in the midst of the walls that you call home that makes life hard. Or a child that's a grown adult, but you find yourself in profound enmity with them. Maybe it's a politician, a judge, a mayor, a governor, a congresswoman, the vice president, the president. You despise them. You see them as the enemy because of what they say and what they do. Maybe it's not a politician, but a pastor who has deeply disappointed you or one with whom you disagree. Maybe it's a pro-choice leader. Maybe it's a world leader. Maybe it's a leader of a worldview that you find so horrific because it is in complete opposition to the Bible. Maybe it's the person you wed. We know the reality of what broken relationships, a broken worldview, what sin can do to corrupt the way a woman or a man sees the world and how they act towards one another. Jesus is not unaware. He comes to this section of scripture And the first thing he does is he brings a correction and then he gives three commandments. The first two commandments are easy to see, but they follow a correction that is really important to understand. So look with me at verse 43. Five times already Jesus has said, you have heard. He's pointing back to what they would have heard as those who had known something of the Old Testament. He starts in verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And what Jesus does is he takes that which they had heard, that which they had known, and he expands it. He does the same thing with adultery. You have heard it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, he who looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery in his heart. He expands it showing more and more of our desperate need for Jesus, that we just can't check off the list and find ourselves perfect and therefore received by God. So now he does something interesting. In verse 43, he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So Jesus is bringing a correction before he gives the commands. And the correction has to do with a distortion, a perversion by the religious leaders, the Jewish rabbis of what was originally said. And what's present is a subtraction and an addition. And this is a normal thing for people to do. People who eventually find themselves enemies of God because they take things out of God's word because they don't like what it says, or they add things to God's word because they don't like what it says. 
And the religious leaders, the rabbis had done this for hundreds of years. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor. There's a subtraction. It doesn't just say you shall love your neighbor. It says you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you have a Bible, turn to Leviticus 19. I want to encourage you as the fall is upon us to begin to bring your Bible This isn't a pastor trying to make you feel shame right now. They're not that heavy. I mean, they can be. You can bring in one that weighs 10 pounds. Bring your Bible. Here's why. We are often moving throughout parts of Scripture, which would be helpful for you to see. We always provide it in the print of the bulletin, and we always have a Bible in the blue blue Bible on the Purex. And if you don't have a Bible and you want one right now, take it. It's not stealing. I'm giving you permission. Take it. If you want one that's a little different than that, go to the bookstore downstairs. We don't make money on these. We sell them at cost. And buy one. Don't take those. That's stealing. (laughs) Just to be clear. But take one. If you don't have the money to buy one, I'll buy it for you. It's serious. Take a Bible and bring it with you. This is why it matters. God's word, his law, is being unpacked and explained by God himself through his servants, his prophets. Luke, I'm sorry, Leviticus 19, verse 18 says this. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So it's clear You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The rabbis had taught that you just have to love your neighbors. And they began to draw very strict restrictions on what neighbor was. A neighbor would simply be someone who was one of my own people, part of my own kin, who belongs to my race, who belongs to my religion, And you can begin to see already the ceilings of what racism would look like when one group of people would see another and think, we are better, we need to be protected from them. That is not what God's word was saying. It wasn't just about their own clan that they were to love, but this is what they taught. Therefore, an extreme teaching was born. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor. They have subtracted as yourself, but then they added something. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. God's word never said that. God's law never said that. So how could these rabbis begin to teach something so radical? Well, it's not that hard to understand. We're only told to love our neighbors. We were not told to love those outside of our tribe, outside of our kin. And suddenly, in a way of just simply perverting from deduction, they begin to teach that it's actually godly not to just love your neighbor, those who are just like you, but to also hate your enemy. 
That is not what God's word says. So Jesus now in this sermon is moving his audience to understand that what he is calling them to is far greater. So he says, I say to you, and when Jesus says, I say to you, remember, this is the living God. This is the one who is the word. And all of God's word is God breathed. So Jesus is breathing the very word of God as he's teaching. And all scripture is God breathed, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And that's what Jesus is doing right now. He is correcting. He is training. He is going to say something that they didn't expect to hear. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I'm telling you, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, I want, I want to help you not get lost in bad exegesis right now. Jesus is serious with what he's calling us to. This is not an application of a linguistic tool that we might call hyperbole to say he didn't really mean it. He was just making his point so that we really would love our neighbor well. Jesus is saying there is a standard that the rabbis before me have missed. They perverted a teaching by subtracting the, like yourself, and adding and hate your neighbor. And I'm telling you, and I'm serious about this, as a follower of mine, you are called to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The list of people that came to your mind when I asked you who your enemies were, you do not have the right ever to not love them. Ever. And I want to be careful. Some of you have probably been profoundly wronged, abused, in relationships that are so broken. The Lord has compassion for you. He is not calling you to enter things that are dangerous to you. But he's calling us to a love that is impossible, that can only be in him. But we, when we see something like this so hard, are tempted to do the very thing that the rabbis did, to subtract from this or to add something to it. The very things that probably create enemies in our minds, when they do it, we could do the same thing. By leaving here saying, I don't have to love an enemy. That's not what Christ is calling us to. It's hard, and he has compassion. But I want to be honest. The percentage of people that have been so profoundly wounded some, by somebody that this applies to them in terms of the deep wounds that they've experienced is not our primary problem. Our primary problem is that we have no issue ripping politicians apart that don't preach or teach what we like. We have no problem ripping brothers and sisters apart who don't believe what we believe. I hear it all the time. And there's very little shame even in what's being exposed. When that happens, 
When Christians fail to love the way Christ has called us to love, it dims the beauty of the love that Christ has given us, the love that Christ has shown us. When you listen to a friend after a small group meeting or even during a small group meeting, scandalize someone because they don't like what they believe. As a believer, you should rebuke that in love. You shouldn't add to it, and you also shouldn't be passive. You should call it out. You should say, that's ungodly. I can't stand what that person believes either. See, it's okay to despise what is in error. It's okay to despise what is vile and what is wicked. Loving isn't compromising truth. That would be unloving, actually. Loving truth, standing for truth, puts you in a place like the psalmist who says, I've received your word. I shed streams of tears because people don't obey your word, don't believe your word. That's appropriate. But what we're never allowed to do is hate the one who's believing wrongly or to love them. And this is hard. That's the first thing Jesus sought to do. He corrects. Then he offers three commands. The commands are very easy to see, the first two especially. What are they? Well, look with me again at verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Isn't that an interesting statement? Well, let's go to the first command. Love your enemies. The Greek word is agape. There are four words in the Greek language for love. Agape is the divine love. It's the love that is for another person when they don't deserve it. It's the love that God shows to us primarily because we, outside of Christ, never deserved it. He didn't decide in looking at our future, seeing some of us who are pretty good or going to be pretty good and say, we'll love them. He, the one true God, loved us agape love while we were still sinners. The kind of love that Christ is calling us to have for our enemies is that agape love. It's that divine love. It is a choice to love that which is unlovable. It's a choice to love the person who has harmed you or longs to harm you. Let me be clear. This is not about people who annoy us. We're to love them too. This is further than that. This is about people who want to harm you, who want ill will for you. They're enemies. We're to love them. The agape love that Christ speaks about reminds us quickly. It has to that this call is impossible. One of the things that we experience when it is impossible is to, not, to deny, therefore, that it's actually God's call. So when God says, Christ says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, we essentially are saying he didn't really mean it. If he didn't really mean it, he wouldn't have really said it. So the burden isn't for us to dismiss it and say he didn't really mean it, it's to understand well, what did he mean by it. The clue has to do with the second part of verse 45. 
or the first part of verse 45. 44, he says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Now, if we aren't careful with this, a person might walk out saying, in order for me to be a son of my father in heaven, I must love my enemies. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is that those who have been saved by Christ, who have been given this agape love, a love that they didn't deserve. Read Ephesians 2. We were dead, all of us, in our trespasses and sins. We were following the course of the error, error, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. And we're like the rest of mankind, destined for his wrath. That's who we were. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great agape he had for us, made us alive together in Christ. That's who we were. So when Jesus is calling us to this love, he isn't saying you become sons when you love this way. He is saying as a son, as a daughter, you will love this way. Think of it this way. Like father, like son, little s. Like father, capital S, like son. We love the way our father has loved us, but now change it. Like father, like son, capital S. Like father, like son, capital S. If Christ didn't come, if the Father didn't demonstrate his own love for us on this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, we could never love the way the Father has called us to love. It's impossible. And that's the point. In every commentary I read, maybe a dozen, Alfred Plummer was quoted. It's worth paying attention to. Here's what he wrote. To return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. To love as God loves is moral perfection. Let me say that again. To return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. That was the point Jesus was making. What good is it? What reward do you have if you love those who love you? That's easy. Even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You know the key word in that whole section is more. M-O-R-E. Our love in Christ, like the Father's love, is to be more it is to be exceptional. It is to be extraordinary. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. To love as God loves is moral perfection. And none of us can do it. There's not a person in here who can leave in their own power and say, I am now going to love my enemies. Because the love that God is calling us to isn't just a mindset of love. Oh, I love them because I'm supposed to. 
It's like parents with their children. Tell them you're sorry. I'm sorry. Are you really sorry? Yes. Let's move on. It's just inconvenient. God is calling us to love. Luke chapter 6 is where Luke records this same section of the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what he says. Just listen as I read it. It's one verse or two verses. I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. I'm not making this up. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. How can you do that and mean it apart from Christ? You can't. That's what leads to the next part. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's the second command. John Stott quotes Bonhoeffer a good bit in his commentary on this passage. He reads something that's very profound from Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer, in speaking about the command to pray for those who persecute us as we love our enemies, says this. This is the supreme command, wrote Bonhoeffer. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, stand by his side, and plead for him to God. That list that you made up a minute ago, do you love them? Are you praying for them? What do you pray for them? Do you pray for them just to think the way you want them to think? Or do you recognize that if they die apart from Christ, they spend eternity and hopelessness separated from God? Moreover, if intercessory prayer is an expression of what love we have, it is a means to increase our love as well. It is impossible to pray for someone, to truly intercede for someone without loving him, and impossible to go on praying for him without discovering that our love for him grows and matures. We must not therefore wait before praying for an enemy until we feel some love for him in our heart. We must begin to pray for him before we are conscious of loving him, and we shall find our love break first into bud then into blossom. Pray for your enemies. We all have them. We talk about them often in a way that shows we're not loving the way Christ has called us to love. When you receive someone's complaint against another and you know that it's not loving towards that person, as a brother or sister in Christ, lovingly rebuke that and move immediately into prayer. What might God do? Who's the greatest enemy of the church? We might have a long list. We could perhaps even debate. But who's the greatest enemy of the church today? I don't know. But I know not long after Christ died, it was Saul. And I wonder how the disciples who heard this thought about Saul. Saul would come to Christ. His name would be changed to Paul. He would write 13 books of the Bible. I can't imagine 
that there were very many people following Christ at that time who weren't talking about the ravaging things Paul was doing to destroy the church. That was his ambition. He believed what the Ribas had taught. Love your neighbor. This is my neighbor. And hate your enemy. And enemy number one for Paul was Jesus Christ. He hated him. Think about that. He hated him. And therefore, he hated all who would follow. He took delight in believing God was pleased with him when the murder of Stephen took place. But God, but God, God had a different plan. And God's love would overwhelm Saul. And Paul would go on to write 13 books of the Bible. Who is your enemy? Do you have any hope that God might save them? If you don't, ask God to take you off his throne and give you trust in his sovereignty. You're not to be on his throne. You're not the judge. You don't know a person's eternity. You don't know when they might pray to receive Christ or if they never will. That's not your place. But what is your place? comes in the third command. First, love your enemy. Second, pray for those who persecute you. That's your enemy. Third command, you might not see it as a command, is the very first verse I read at the beginning. In the last verse of this section. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What does that mean? I'm going to close with this. This is one of those verses, if misunderstood, could derail a person spiritually in two ways. One would be, he didn't really mean it because we can't be perfect. Or, i got to go try and be perfect. Neither one is the right application. Here's how amazing God's word is. The Greek language that's spoken here is a future indicative. And what that means is two things are happening at once. Don't get lost. This isn't that hard. I know you're hungry, so am I, and I've been here longer than you. The future indicative means that two things are happening at the same time. One is a promise of what will be. And this verse could literally be translated, you therefore shall become perfect as your heavenly father, and you will. There is an eternity coming for all who are in Christ when we will never have an enemy known. We'll never have wrong thoughts, wrong ideas, wrong actions. Never again. There is a promise that this perfection will one day be. But in this future indicative, there is also a command. And the command literally is, be perfect. Be perfect. You shall be perfect. Be perfect. You shall be perfect. The point that Jesus is making the whole time, though, is this. Apart from him, it is impossible. Apart from him, it is impossible. But in him, by his faithful perfection of us, we can love the way the Father loves. We actually can love our enemies. Dr. Daniel Doriani, one of my professors at Covenant, speaking of this verse, 
says this. In this verse, God offers hope for success, not just mercy for failure. In this verse, God offers hope for success, not just mercy for failure. But the hope is not in our ability. It's in our identity. It's in our identity as sons of the perfect Heavenly Father. From that place, we can do the extraordinary. We can do the impossible. We cannot slander other human beings. We can hold our tongue and not set a forest on fire. We can look at a person who seeks to harm us or our children and say, I'm praying to the Lord that you would be saved only by his grace, only by his identity. This is the call of Christ on our lives. And when the church loves this way, the world will notice because it is an extraordinary love. It is an impossible love. And when they ask you how, you'll say, because of his agape for me. Father in heaven, we close the hymn that's gonna speak of your glory. And let it not be lost on us that the one who is all glorious, our reigning king, his spirit lives in us, seeking to perfect us. What one day will be true is being made true even now. Encourage us with these words and let us experience the power of your fruitfulness in our lives as we seek to love our neighbors as ourselves and even our enemies. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand, let's sing.